Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon. The show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's episode is Will Jordan, the author of the very popular Ryan Drake series and the creator and presenter of the Critical Drinker YouTube channel. We jumped into Will's experience starting out on YouTube as an independent content creator, reviewing video games and films, how he literally found his critical voice and his love for the iconic horror survival video game series, Resident Evil. So if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, hope you enjoy my interview with Will. So when I discovered your channel, The Critical Drinker, um, I was excited by a critical voice that wasn't just singly focused on film, TV and video games. You pretty much reviewed them all. I mean, was that a conscious choice on your part? Most of the time I talk about things that I'm passionate about. You know, one thing I won't do is, is you know, do a video about uh, a movie or a TV show or whatever just because I think it'll get clicks or views. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really care that much about that kind of thing. I do it more just because... I talk about the things I'm interested in. So if I've played a particular video game and I want to talk about it, I'll make a video. Um, Same with TV shows that I've watched um, and the same thing with movies. So, yeah, it it wasn't really like I was trying to net the biggest audience I could get or Mm -hmm. anything like that. It was more just, um, I guess I've got a broad range of interest when it comes to entertainment. Um, I would even do book reviews, really, if I got round to it, but uh, it's just finding the time, I guess. I just wondered, in terms of sort of like general sort of criticism, do you think it's the future now that critics sort of coming up now are going to have to maybe consider writing or writing reviews about film, TV and video games really to have a more informed opinion of what's culturally going on? Because I think one of my examples is like Mark Kermode, like he doesn't really engage with video games yet. A fair amount of the sort of mainstream films he's watching are inspired by that. Yeah, I mean, I think if you've got someone like him who's obviously, you know, a fair bit older, he's perhaps not going to have that that background in video games that I think is is kind of necessary to, to review them. You know, it's not to say that um, he couldn't do it. I just think you kind of have to have been part of that um, mm. that industry or that culture for quite a while to, to appreciate them and, and to have played a lot of games so you've got a good point of comparison. Mm. So I think maybe these more established um, movie and and TV show critics, they would uh, they would perhaps struggle to do that kind of thing, um, mm. and I think yeah, it's there's definitely commonalities between video games and uh, and movies that sort of thing. You know, ultimately most games are telling some kind of story. It's just the nature of it is a lot more interactive, and mm-hmm. usually you can influence it a lot more. Um, so it's it's games are definitely for me the harder thing to review right. because there's so much more to them than mm-hmm. than you would get within a um within just a movie which is a passive experience yeah. um but it's all it's all a good challenge you know um it's uh, it's something i enjoy doing i mean the one thing i was sort of struck about in terms of video games is there's definitely there's definitely like a real tangible sense of mechanics to it like how does the actual game play like how does the controller sit in your hand how the buttons been mapped and how do the actual shooting or walking or interactive mechanics work and how does that actually inform the storytelling whereas like in terms of film i guess the only thing you really kind of have to consider i guess is like sound so like pacing in terms of sort of more technical sort of aspects of i guess cinematography i mean maybe i'm brushing over that a bit too easily but it there definitely is an element to video games where it's a lot more uh, tactile in a way yeah, definitely. That, that's why they're hard to review, because you're doing all the things that you would look at with a movie. You know, 
whereas with a movie you'd look at the the cgi or the cinematography with a video game you'll talk about the graphics but it's the same idea you've got all the storytelling elements you've got the characterization you've got the plot um, dialogue all those sort of things you can talk about but then like you say you have to talk about the mechanics of the gameplay you know um how well does it function um how how well does the game deliver that story to you what degree of control do you have over it um just how well does the the, um, how, how balanced is the gameplay mm-hmm. all of those things so yeah it, it results in a a much broader review i think yeah. um which can sometimes be quite a challenging thing to do um but yeah i mean i genuinely you know i think i'm one of those people that's um kind of ranks video games up there now mm-hmm. with with movies in terms of like the, the actual quality of the stories they can tell they, they've come on so far in the last 10 15 years from from what they started of quite a, uh you know an industry that was in its infancy to where it's at now it's it's remarkable but it with that comes all the the expectations that get put on them mm. um the need to be like um, socially responsible to to reflect all these different things that people look for nowadays um and yeah, the, to try and please critics who who kind of a lot of the time just care about activism rather than actual quality gameplay. So yeah. they've got their own challenges within that industry. And that's something I kind of wanted to jump into with you because you've been very vocal about the modern state of uh, film criticism, especially in 2019. To me, it seems that most mainstream critics have kind of lost their way in the mire of identity politics, virtue signaling and clickbait to stay relevant. I mean, what's your particular take about just being a film critic in 2019? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it is something I've talked a great deal about, and it's it's just a pain in the arse, really, because for me, you know, politics is kind of the death of art. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to have creative freedom to tell the kind of story that you want to tell, and if you're now being told, well, you know, we've you've got to. Um, You've got to give all of these different groups uh, proper representation. You've got to treat characters in a certain way based on their gender or their sexuality or whatever it might be. You know, it, it's like starting a game of chess when you're already in checkmate. Like, mm. you've completely crippled your ability to tell a, an interesting story because you're trying to work within this framework of all these different rules to try and please not just the critics, but all the people on social media who will absolutely pillory if they think that your movie has stepped out of line and i think it's to the detriment of entertainment the result is you get movies now which are you know just really safe and predictable Mm. and they they adhere to a formula because they're so terrified of getting criticism for all this kind of stuff yeah Uh, and it's that sort of thing's reflected in the critics as well and i don't know how many of them actually feel this way Mm. and how many of them just they feel like they ought to say these things to appease their audience but either way they're they're not looking at the things that are actually relevant and that's why when you've got people like myself who are just making youtube videos about it you know this isn't our career or for me in a way it's not Mm. my career i'm not dependent upon it and i'm not worried about pleasing people necessarily so Mm. it gives me a bit of freedom to just kind of say what i want to say and and call out movies that i think are just crap basically so that's what i do and i take great pleasure in doing it Um, just one of the things as I was sort of preparing for the interview, something that sort of cropped up was the, um, the joke movie that the um, victims of the Aurora shooting, which is in 2012, which was related to Dark Knight Rises, this new film directed by Todd Phillips and starring Wrecking Phoenix about the Joker, which they're saying, well, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know, but they're saying it's a little bit more sympathetic take and there's some similarities between it. So I, I clicked on the article and I read it 
And the first thing you read is um, one of the victims says this is a slap in the face to the people that were shot there. And then as I was sort of trucking through, the point was that they didn't want to cancel the movie. Was It was like they wanted Warner Brothers to stop giving political uh, political donations to candidates that supported gun control. And I was like, well, that seems like a fair enough sort of like point, but it was definitely wrapped around somebody's agenda of, oh, Joker movie, bad. But it even sort of misrepresented the um, the people's, the, the, the victims' sort of like letter of it, which I thought was such a weird... It was such a weird angle to go at something like that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you, you can't have anything but sympathy for, for victims of a tragedy mm. like that, clearly. But, you know, to then have people who are trying to use that kind of suffering for, for some kind of political aim is mm. is awful, really. It's kind of reprehensible. But then, yeah. you know, if you were to follow that kind of logic, then, you know, films like schindler's list never would have got made because Mm. it's almost like well that's that's going to inspire people to be nazis or whatever you know or you know anything that deals with with unpleasant subjects it's um it leaves you in a a bit of an impossible situation then because it's almost Mm. like saying you you can't have movies that deal with any kind of violence or you know terrorism or or any kind of political element of it so where can you go from there? So I, I think again, you know, it's certainly not to downplay things like that shooting, but um, you know, this this new Joker movie is dealing with a comic book character who's mm-hmm. been around since long before I was born, um, and it's a character that people find interesting, mm-hmm. and you know, they, they want to see where he came from, perhaps, and by all accounts, it does a really good job of that. So I, I it would be better to to some extent, if people are able to separate that kind mm, of art from yeah. from any kind of political considerations because it's not what it's meant to represent. Yeah, I really agree. And it, what's strange to me is that, sort of like jumping, sort of segueing across, even someone like Robert Downey Jr., I was just thinking about his particular uh, personal history of if he did this, if he behaved or had the similar sort of issues as he did back then... I don't know. Ten years later, if he'd be cast as um, Iron Man purely on his own, on his on his rather um, colourful um, personal life, shall we say? And it's the fact that we kind of expect that everybody's going to be sort of like nice. They're not going to have any issues. Always going to say and do the right things and not have any issues, which I find very weird because that's the thing that kind of creates character that's the thing that you know struggle and adversity these are the things that we find most interesting yet we're kind of cutting ourselves off the knee by saying well only nice people can can have and and make things i think in a way yeah i think it's that that whole element that we have nowadays of like going back into people's pasts whether it's like digging up a tweet that they made 10 years ago or something like that and you know holding it against them now Mm. um or, or just looking at their their past you know history um, like you say, those kinds of um, people, the people who are perhaps um, a little bit unbalanced or, or that don't just live regular lives often turn out to be the ones who are the most creative, who produce mm-hmm. the most groundbreaking arts or, or the best performances or whatever it might be. Um, sometimes it requires that, I don't know, what, what do they call it, like the kind of tortured artist yeah. uh, mentality. Uh, maybe that's what it is. But, the, mm. you know, like you say, there's this expectation now that people need to be like uh, almost flawlessly virtuous all the time and mm. have never put a foot wrong. Um, and the result is 
perhaps that we're going to lose those actors or those um, those celebrities or those artists who are the most interesting because they're deemed unacceptable. Mm. Um, and that's going to be a sad thing, I think, for a lot of us, if, if that's what happens. You know, you, you see it, I guess, in some movies nowadays where... You know, you might be watching it and you think, God, this this lead is just kind of bland and it's yeah. not he's not he or she's not making any real impression on me. It's because that person's just not very interesting mm. and it carries over into their performance. Whereas, you know, you get someone like Robert Downey Jr., he's battled his demons, he's had tough times in life, but then it's kind of reflected in who he is now. Yeah. He's a guy who who's very much seems like he's been there and done that. And mm. I think that played quite well for someone like Tony Stark. <laughs> it did indeed. And I think also just supplying off that point, like art has always been like the, it's always been a place where like the misfits, the people that didn't really quite fit in or they couldn't fit in anywhere else or could maybe couldn't quite handle having like a nine to five job, but they had these other sort of like skills. They weren't exactly, um, you couldn't really put them on like a sort of CV or there weren't anything you could particularly sort of like teach, but this is where they sort of gravitated towards these. And I think by making it more, more formal, more sort of like neutered, you also cutting off a section of, of people to sort of exist and actually have like um make a career actually be able to ability to sort of make money in some in some ways which seems really yeah it seems really odd to me yeah i, I think there's um there, there there's this kind of element now i suppose of um you know actors or, or artists or whatever maybe don't develop as organically as they used to mm-hmm. uh, because of you know the expectations that are put on them now like you say that you know it used to be that you'd get those people who weren't that well adjusted the, the misfits who wouldn't be able to do regular jobs like like we do um but that's where they shine you know mm. so i just wanted to sort of jump in to um the critical drinker channel i was just wondering when you were starting to think about making youtube content did you take inspiration from channels like red letter media zero punctuation i believe like oliver harper i think he started a few years before you did as well he did sort of retrospectives as well i first started doing youtube years and years ago just just tinkering around with it mostly because i was interested in, in video editing and, mm. and learning a bit more about that and you know it, it didn't really go very far because i wasn't putting much effort in um and then i eventually left it alone for a good few years mm. and pursued a writing career instead that took up most of my time but i decided to come back to it just out again out of interest and and Mm. kind of boredom um to some extent and i was i was keen to have another go at it um and what i did initially was not so much the critical drinker type things but um just a, a kind of generic polite sort of um you know youtuber who was yeah. talking about video games for the most part and it didn't really you know not really getting any traction i was getting like a few hundred hits per video yeah. and there's nothing there but then i almost just put one out with an attitude of like, I don't really give a fuck anymore. Mm. I'm just going to just do whatever I, I think and I'm going to say whatever I want to say. Yeah. Um, and I did the, the drinker voice and stuff because I quite like the idea of this character who's kind of articulate and intelligent, mm. but just a drunken asshole at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And for some reason, that video just took off. And before I knew it, it had over a million views. And suddenly i had this um you know this pretty rapidly growing channel mm. um and it felt a little bit like you know going on to open mic night with one good joke that landed well and then suddenly right. everyone expects a whole set from you and it's like oh shit now i need to do more videos like this yeah uh, so it, yeah the the drinker character i guess and the drinker channel um 
didn't come straight away but then when it arrived i sort of got immediately why people seemed to appreciate it mm. and i was like oh cool i'm happy to do this because um I, I quite like that character i like the idea of playing a bit of a character rather than just a boring old voice just analyzing stuff so yeah. it just went from there and it's been great um in terms of like the critical drink and the voice because i was there's something i was sort of interested about is like this it sounds this guy sounds really really pissed yet he's very um articulate and has a very um forensic um approach to criticism that you'd only really get if you were an author like yourself that spent hours and hours and hours really sort of like dissecting the, um, the mechanics of character um narrative and overarching themes was actually based on just living in scotland and just the regular sort of winos you'd sort of run into or was that something you've been working on for a while i, I think it was you know it was definitely based on experiences where you do sometimes find that people become surprisingly like eloquent and philosophical when they're pissed, mm. uh, you know, b- before they get over that apex and then they just become incoherent messes. But like, yeah, you can sometimes get that, that perfect level of drunkenness, you know, where you're mm. actually really smart and articulate when you weren't. <laughs> um, so, and I like, I really like contrasts in mm. characters and people and stuff. So I love that contrast of like, you know, being pissed and coming out with like you know really inappropriate humor at times and stuff but also actually being quite um analytical and smart mm. beneath it uh, to something well, as best as i can be anyway um and it allows you to get points across really effectively because people listen to you when they're amused and they're entertained mm. you know i, I could yeah. do the same things that i do um with the drinker but if i just spoke in a normal way and i didn't crack jokes or anything and people would be you know, falling asleep with it. Mm. So having a, a bit of an entertainment factor and finding something that people enjoy, it allows you to get so much across to them and people take it in because they're interested in you. And also I think it's the fact that it's a sort of very, I mean, this character, I want to say, is like impervious to bleach because there's references to drinking bleach being fine the next morning, drinking vast <laughs> yeah. quantities of, of, of alcohol, so a sort of devil may cry aspect to it, which which I guess people like because it's sort of like there's a bit of a dig but anybody who works for say IndieWire or the more traditional film publications they are very sort of like clean cut on message almost like politicians where I guess like he's a complete um, sort of uh, antithesis of that so many of these kind of professional um, critics and so on they're so worried about their image or not offending people or whatever that you know much like with what we were discussing earlier mm. they end up becoming completely bland and uninteresting mm. and you know doing that thing of like talking for ages but not really saying anything useful mm. and uh, yeah i just i want you to be the complete opposite of that and i think maybe a lot of us just wish for that you know when we're we're listening to some you know boring arsehole at work mm. giving us a pc lecture or whatever there's there's that part in all of us i think who just wants to go like oh fuck off i'm not interested in what you have to say but you know we can't do it yeah, yeah. it gives me an opportunity to just say all these things that perhaps a lot of people are thinking mm. so uh, that i just really love it's cathartic and it kind of reminds me because i used to listen to brett east analysis um podcast back when it was on itunes and it was free and he had a very i want to say sort of a contrarian view because he was always talking about uh, empire and post-empire and a lot of sort of identity politics which i really I vibed with in a way that I wasn't 100%, I didn't 100% grasp like identity politics and I still really don't, but there was just certain things that sort of like rank me. I think the way that's being sort of like positioned and I'm told that I'm supposed to, I'm, this is supposed to be good for me. I'm, this is, I'm supposed to support this book because it represents something. And here was, here was someone like Brittany Sellers and yourself was kind of saying, well, hang on a minute. No, if you look a bit deeper into this, kind of what they're saying isn't, 
isn't really that much benefit um, of how they're going about it because obviously um, diversity is a great thing um, empowering uh, female characters are great things but I guess it's just how they're kind of going about it for some reason was always sort of like rankling I wasn't 100% sure um, why that was but it's nice someone like you can kind of put that into some context and sort of um, perspective you know talking about all of those things like you say you know I've I've spoken to, to quite a few content creators on YouTube now as part of my channel and mm. you know we all seem to be of like mind in the sense that if you want to have diverse casts if you want to have strong female characters uh, whatever it might be that's perfectly fine like nobody has an issue with that um what we have an issue with is bad writing mm. um, and when you take those things which are noble goals and you implement it in a really clumsy awkward forceful way um you just you alienate people straight away um, and that's why, you know, probably I had uh, an issue with a movie like, say, Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, you, you've got theoretically a strong female character who's just completely unlikable because she's like Superman without the kryptonite, yeah. you know, completely invincible, completely unstoppable. Nothing can challenge this character. And she doesn't even have a flawed personality to go with it. It's not wrestling with demons or um she's got some kind of personal obstacle to overcome mm. and like that like which might have been interesting if she yeah. you know potentially was a bit of an anti-hero or something but she's just nice and virtuous and strong and capable and all the rest and it's so dull you know mm. we I, I kind of think that people like characters for their flaws not their virtues yeah you know that's why people can warm to someone like tony stark who's just a selfish asshole mm. uh, to begin with, um, who who's kind of just um, out for his own glory and and um, not particularly interested in helping people. But then he strives to be something better over the course of his character arc, yeah. and that's what people like. Whereas if you've got a character who starts off virtuous and great and 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 uh, selfless, where have you got to go from there? Nowhere. So people people don't like it because there's no flaws there to humanize them. The ca- she's, uh, Captain Marvel slowly becomes a bigger and bigger arsehole um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, by the end I was, of it I was on yeah. the podcast when we were talking about this kind of thing and it's like god wouldn't it be interesting if they turned her into a Daenerys from Game of Thrones and yeah. she just goes batshit crazy and starts like incinerating <laughs> cities and stuff and they have to fight her she becomes like the next Thanos mm. like oh okay that could actually be interesting Yeah. Uh, same, with, same with someone like Rey from the, the new Star Wars movies like if she genuinely turned evil and she mm. became the villain i'd be like oh okay well maybe that explains why she's so bloody amazing at everything it's like they were building up to a, a an evil turn yeah um, won't do that obviously that would involve creativity and, and <laughs> imagination i like you when i went to see the um star wars the last jedi and the more i kind of think about it because when i actually watched the, the film i guess like i wasn't that engaged with sort of star wars i mean i went to see the um the force awakens but the more and more i thought about that movie the more and more i thought wow like I, I don't know, it's almost beyond words. How, how did you get away with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked about this to, mm. to various people and thinking about The Last Jedi is like dealing with uh, a, a monster from H.P. Lovecraft. Like, mm. if, the more you think about it, the closer to insanity you get because it's just mind-boggling, the the things that, that came about to make that movie happen. You know, the fact that he was able to <clears throat> submit a script where the hero of the the original trilogy is portrayed as a grumpy, broken, pathetic old man, Mm. you know, where, where you've got um, 
every female character is amazing and competent and flawless and pretty much every male character is whiny or emotionally unstable or mm. incompetent or idiotic or whatever you know a movie that completely breaks the lore of the series and and does all kinds of nonsense with like the technology and the science mm. of star wars you know that nobody would have said like mate this is a great script and all that but i think there's a few things you're going to have to change here <laughs> otherwise people are going to have lots of questions about it yeah you know it's, it's crazy i i can only assume perhaps that um the people at disney like kathleen kennedy who mm. was the sort of sorry, the president of Lucasfilm, brought him in because he would be pliable and easy to to kind of control. Yeah. Whereas you've got other more experienced directors who are probably going to push back on a lot of things. Whereas someone like him is just going to say yes to everything because he's just just cutting his teeth as a director. He's really just starting out. Yeah. Maybe that was the reason. Um, but yeah, like you, the problems of that movie are more than I could cover in a day of, of constant ranting about it it's just insane i mean i was just thinking i played like a little thought experiment so i can't think of another actor that played such an iconic character that years 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 later came back signed up to a movie which essentially was his massive massive comeback for him and they just completely destroyed both the actor and the character and you can visibly see mark hamill almost in tears as he's doing the the press for this movie because it was just like a knife to his heart yeah. the fact they just completely destroyed his legacy in a way and treated him so so poorly the way i understand it is that he signed up to come back to to star wars back when george lucas was still in control of lucasfilm mm. <clears throat> ultimately lucas then sold it to disney and mark hamill kind of went with them as part of that that deal so he'd, he'd come back on the basis that he'd been sort of talking to George Lucas mm. with an idea for, for how his return would work. And I imagine it was a much more heroic Luke Skywalker. Mm. Uh, so probably he was up for that. Um, and then all of a sudden he gets presented with this monstrosity that he's going to have to do. And I just, yeah, I felt so sorry for the guy when he's mm. drinking that green milk. And, mm. you know, it, it's so humiliating. And I think, honestly, if it had been me, I pretty much would have just refused to do it. Mm. Uh, I would have honestly just said, look, if you if you have to sue me for breach of contract on this one, mm. go ahead. I will tell everyone what you're planning to do with this character. Um, yeah. And, you know, at this point in my life and career, I don't need this. I'm not that desperate for work that mm. I'm going to put myself through this because it was just, yeah, it was awful. And like you say, there, there's there's video footage of him like it, uh, after the premiere where he just looks like a man who's seen hell. He gets a bad rap of Mark Hamill. Cause I was listening to an interview with him in sort of Kevin Smith and he was like a really legit sort of theater actor. I think he even went to sort of like Juilliard. So he gets a bad rap for being sort of, I mean, he wasn't, Okay, so the original Star Wars, he wasn't that good, but he, he did find his footing and he's carved a very sort of successful career for himself as a voice actor and stuff. So I think it is, it's unfa- I think it's a little unfair that people don't appreciate just quite how successful Mark Hamill has been in his career as well. I think so. And, you know, he, you know, he was very young when he did the original movie. And by the time he got to the third one, he'd, he'd grown quite a bit as an actor and a person. And I think he, he did bring a lot more kind of gravitas to the role mm. than he had originally. So I think he's a bit he gets a bit of unfair criticism. And the one thing I will say about the guy is fuck me, he's professional. Mm. Because as much as he had absolute 
shite to work with on The Last Jedi. He yeah. really gave it his all. Like, he mm. acted the hell out of that part with as much as he could. And it, it speaks well of his, his kind of professionalism that even though he knew the nonsense he was involved in, he still cared enough about that character to give it his best. And it's like, well, good on him, I suppose. Uh, I, I just wish he hadn't been forced to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Also, I just wanted to just sort of jumping off from that sort of point. I just wanted to sort of jump a little bit into the idea of into the idea of sort of diversity um, within the film industry. And what sort of like, sort of interested me is things like Ghostbusters, two thousand sixteen, Captain Marvel to some extent. And I want to say they they're talking about casting uh, female Gandalf for the new Lord of the Rings series. And what was interesting about that is the idea of that through diversity or rebalancing the equation, they're taking established properties which have been male-led and then they're then taking those parts away from traditional, I guess, like leading men um, characters and giving them to women rather than empowering the next generation of filmmakers, storytellers and sort of craftspeople to actually create their own stories that are perhaps more um, reflective and progressive in the times that we kind of live in, which is such an odd, it seems very odd to do in a way I, I for me it's it's actually unbelievably patronizing to to women i guess or, mm. or any minority really that's um uh, that's getting caught up in this because it's like saying well you know we know you can't make it by yourself and you're not going to be able to come up with good characters of your own so mm. we're just gonna we're gonna give you a character we'll just take one that was um played by a man or a white person or whatever and we'll give it to you and it's yours now it's 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 patronizing to them because mm. it's like implying that they can't come up with like original interesting characters of their own um you know another example i guess would be um the james bond issue where they're yeah. they're talking um oh you know the next maybe the next bond should be a woman it's like well no like the mm. character is a male like that as as annoying as that might be for people like that's what he is that's yeah. the way he was written in the books and that's mm. the way he's he's been portrayed in the films like you can't just suddenly decide that a character has gone from male to female mm. without any explanation um and yeah like a lot of the time it becomes it's incompatible with what you're trying to do yeah you know if you were to take bond um and turn him into a female um you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to play off the same things yeah, that you yeah, do yeah. with the male character so it's 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 a really it's a false equivalency i guess um so it just most of the time it doesn't work and it's unfair i think to everyone it's patronizing to the people who get rebalanced into those roles and yeah. it's really unfair to the people who get roles taken away from them because someone's decided this character needs to be such and such you know yeah um so it's 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 not it's not something i support at all i'm very much in favor of having diverse um casts of characters and, and actors but let it happen properly. Let you mm. come up with characters who are meant to be that way. I think most people probably are, are, have got similar opinions. Not that many people seem to be enthusiastic about these um, race and gender swaps of characters. How can ever really truly be diverse if even if you're taking someone from from minority, but you're still sort of like ferrying through through this sort of like system? Because at the end, they're all going to pretty much turn out the same same in a way it doesn't really matter um where they sort of started from but once they go through this sort of like process and they've been sort of like managed and it just seems they're all heading into this form of, sort of homogenization of fitting this particular mold which i guess is like it is also an issue um as well as much as they do try and strive for sort of diversity it's never going to be truly diverse if you keep on ferrying them through this particular i don't know system 
Yeah, I, I think it becomes um, you're almost trying to engineer mm. um, something that should happen a little bit more naturally. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, like you say, it, it ends up coming across as fake. And I think people get a sense of when it's been done. Mm. And and when you when you start to see the strings that are being pulled in order to make a movie look a certain way or or feel a certain way, <clears throat> it takes you out of the experience. So yeah. it, it results in, in a movie or a TV show, whatever it might be, that you can't get into because you just see, oh, I can tell why they've done that, or I can tell why they've they've put this person in here. Yeah, um, it leeches all the fun out of it, really. So yeah, I don't I don't understand how it's how it's meant to work like that. Mm. You know, I mean, speaking of things of that sort of like nature, so I was um, I was rather amused to find out that Game of Thrones season eight had won the Outstanding Drama Series at the 2019 Emmy Awards. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of made me question like, do award shows mean anything really outside <laughs> of selling more movie tickets and boosting ratings for already popular TV shows? Yeah, again, like Game of Thrones, <clears throat> excuse me, was one of those shows that. Um, Certainly for me, I was always taken in by it because I always had the feeling of like, this show is smarter than the mm. people watching it. it. It's got a plan. Um, it's building up to something incredible. There's there's all these hidden meanings to, to so much, like, you know, the cycle of the, 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 the unusual winters and the, the coming of the, um, the White Walkers and all that sort of thing. This all means something and they're going to explain it and it's going to be mind-blowing. And then you get right down to it and it's nothing. Like, mm. and then you realize, holy shit, like these guys had nothing going on this whole time. They didn't have a, a plan. Yeah. They didn't know what they were building up to. The show wasn't anywhere near as smart as I thought it was going to be. And again, it, it's that thing of like, okay, I, I can totally see the strings being pulled now. Yeah. And it's taken right out of the experience. And it's such a shame because it was such a great show when it was at its peak. Mm. Um, and it was, yeah. I, it uh, it let a lot of people down clearly, and I think going back to your point about the awards that it gets, it's just another example of how you know things like the Emmys, the Oscars, all that sort of thing. It is just these people slapping each other on the back, mm. uh, and it's just them self congratulating um, and and probably doing a good bit of virtue signaling at the same time, um, rather than any kind of objective analysis of quality mm. um, and good storytelling. Um, and again, it's it's probably something that uh, a lot of people are waking up to now because it's so blatant. Yeah. You know, when you can show that's failed as badly as Game of Thrones getting getting awards like that, you're just like, yeah, this this means nothing now. <laughs> it really doesn't. It kind of reminds me of like it being the world's most expensive and biggest office party. And it's rigged, and then all the, yeah. all the sort of star performers get up there and have a good old time. And I mean, I should just say, like, I saw a few years ago, I did go to the BAFTAs. I went to the film BAFTAs, and I had a pretty good time. Like, the pageantry is kind of nice, and I got to speak to the makers of uh, this small indie movie um, called uh, Lady Macbeth. And to be, you know, I had a, I had a pretty good time. But I, I guess it's difficult because if you really are into sort of like film history and you think of the Oscars or the Emmys and stuff, you're like, well, I wouldn't mind going to that purely for the sort of pageantry. But as for any, uh, it, it sort of being any sort of judgment on the idea of like quality, when's the last time anything has sort of mattered like that? I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think up until about 10 years ago, maybe even five actually, mm. like the Oscars still meant something. You know, it yeah. was... 
to to have a movie that was <clears throat> nominated for an Oscar, um, never mind winning, was an incredible honor for any filmmaker, I guess. Yeah. But now you know, the, the, now that they have become so overtly political in the Oscars, and like every bloody person who gets up there has something to say about the Orange Man or whatever, um, you know, <laughs> it, it absolutely kills it. And then yeah. you realize it's just people massaging their own egos. That's mm. all it's become. Um, and, and Hollywood trying to demonstrate how like non-racist and non-sexist it is and how amazing they all are. Um, and that's probably reflected in the fact that viewing figures are now in the toilet. Yeah. You know, less and less people are watching the Oscars every single year because they can kind of see them for what they are. Mm. Um, and people, people don't tune in to watch actors talk about politics. Just because you're famous, just because you're, um, you know, you're widely known and stuff, doesn't mean you're in any way qualified to have opinions about the current state of world politics. Like, you're just, most of the time, you're just as clueless as every other person on the street. You're just better dressed. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that they, they need to realize because, yeah, I think they've lost that sense of reality, I suppose. And things like social media just give them this inflated sense that they, they are somehow knowledgeable mm. when they're not most of the time. So just jumping back to Brie Larson, I just wonder if she'll ever look back at about her comments she made about Wrinkle in Time and about white male critics and, and, and sort of excluding people from having a an opinion on something. I just wonder, you know, if the tides were to sort of like change, I mean, how quickly these people's affiliations or, or views would sort of like change with sort of like current trends. And I mean, I, do, I can't remember a time when it was like where actors were could be so divisive in terms of which alliances they kind of had. They always seemed to be a bit... Apolitical, but now I'm thinking of Redford and Marlon Brando. I think probably because in the past the questions were asked less of them. They were asked less about their political opinions mm. now, whereas in 2019, every single thing you do is political. Mm. You know, you pour semi-skimmed milk on your cornflakes in the morning. That's a political <laughs> act as far as some people are concerned. Yeah. And it's just too much. But mm. then the act of not being political for a lot of people is a choice as well. Like, yeah. Uh, I think Taylor Swift has consciously stayed away from politics for years because mm. she knew as much as anyone does, the moment you come down on one side or the other, everyone on the opposite side is going to automatically hate you. And then yeah. suddenly you don't make as much money. Um, but then the more you try and resist it, the more people are going to press you on it because, again, they just, they've got this insane need to know what your political views are on everything. And it's mm. just like you shouldn't, you shouldn't subject actors to that kind of thing and they shouldn't court it because yeah. I can't remember who said it, but they basically said, look, actors are pretty much the court jesters of the modern world. They're there to make us laugh and mm. entertain us. Yeah. Not there to have opinions about things like, but they've, they've been forced into that role and some of them have forced their way into that role, I guess. So yeah, I think Brie Larson is probably going to look back on, some of those comments she made and really regret them because they come back to bite her so often. Well, I also think it's like the erosion of sort of star power because I was just making a little mental list of leading male actors that, that had the sort of star power. I mean, I know it's a different world, but it kind of had the star power of like Tom Cruise that they could open any any movie. It didn't matter what the movie was as long as they were in there. And I mean, they tried, I guess, like with Taylor Kitsch, I want to say, with like uh, the Battleship movie, um, John Carter of Mars, Jai Courtney's had a few goes, Zac Efron, but there's nothing's really sort of stuck. So I guess in terms of relevance and where they sit with the culture, the more that you can align yourself with more 
in a weird way, it seems like politics is, um, and that sort of discourse seems more culturally impactful, more relevant, I guess, with the memification of it than movies in some regards, in terms of that being like the the, fo- the focus. I mean, in itself, politics, I mean, has become a sense of sort of um, entertainment in a way. Now, you, you, <clears throat> you've got essentially the situation where a reality TV star who's a kind of entertainer is now the, the president of the United States. And the, the way politics is conducted now, it's, <clears throat> it's almost theatrical mm. or pantomime-like in the way people, politicians insult each other. You know, they, they don't act like public servants anymore. They act like actors in a play with the good guys and the bad guys always trying to get one over on each other. And yeah, that's, I guess that that's like a weird merging mm. of two worlds. Like you're saying, you know, as entertainment is becoming more political, politics is becoming more like entertainment. They're not really two worlds that should meet. <laughs> you know no. what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think it was like really boring, done by people who are really serious about mm. what they do than what we have at the moment. But that's the world we live in, unfortunately. You know, on my channel, I, I obviously don't really get into no. politics in a larger sense. I just talk about uh, the sort of merging of that with entertainment and yeah. how it can how it can affect the, the quality of the products that you're putting out. So I just kind of wanted to jump into steering away from uh, politics for a moment. Um, I just wanted to jump into your love for the Resident Evil games because I watched your retrospective on them. Uh, oh, yeah, week. yeah. Um, which I really enjoyed. It was so the first Resident Evil game that I played was um, Resident Evil Five. So my appreciation experience of the series is like very, very different from yours, I guess, from playing the original Resident Evil. And I, I just wondered, do you think your opinion kind of would have been a bit different if you played Resident Evil Four first? I think everyone's got fond memories of their, you know, their first game in a series or whatever, because that's mm. their that becomes their standard of measure, and that's the that's the way they relate to that series. So. Yeah, much like for yourself, like you would have uh, played Resident Evil Five. That's a very action-oriented game, um, and that's why that's perhaps how you would view the series. But then you go mm-hmm. back to the the early ones, and they're they're much slower paced, and they're much more based around uh, and kind of exploration and, and uh, resource management, all that sort of thing. Um, but that, I guess, is what kind of appealed to me when I first started playing yeah. it. Like I, I really kicked off with the very first one, like you know, twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. Like I played the shit out of that game, and and some, most of the other um, PlayStation era ones. And I just really I found them really enjoyable. And I guess I always wanted to talk about my experiences of playing them and yeah. my thoughts on how they gradually <clears throat> change over the years, and how the series has gone through different phases. And you know now it's kind of gone full circle. It's back to Resident Evil Seven, which is that much more that slower paced, yeah. you know, constrained. Um, sort of puzzle solving based uh, experience so it's gone all the way back to what it started with um and i think resident evil revelations 2 is another one like that yeah. much much more constrained low-key based around the the sort of horror aspects of it more but i've all i've enjoyed all of them in their own ways like even even six which is kind of like yeah. seen as a bit of a low point uh, i can go back to it and play it and it's like oh it's a good action game. It's fun. It's not really a Resident Evil game like I remember, but yeah. it's still a good game to play. It's good, good laugh. Because I just remember playing Resident Evil Five with my brother on co-op, and we would just play the. Uh, oh God, I'm trying to remember what it was. The basically the, the um, it's like the multiplayer where you go around and just shoot zombies for points and stuff, and it's yeah, time. Yeah, like kind of thing. Yeah, and we yeah, would just uh, fucking play that till we got like was it S class. 
I think that's yeah. About... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it was good. To... Yeah, I liked five actually. Like, um, it's uh, in the main campaign mode. I think the 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 two player thing felt a little bit tacked mm. on. And when I played it, most of the time I was just doing it in single player mode. Right. So the, the, the your companion was an AI and not a particularly good one. No. Um, and I always felt like a Resident Evil game should be a solo kind of experience. Right. It should be you versus the environment, and it makes you feel, you know, a lot more vulnerable because you don't have someone watching your back or giving you extra firepower or whatever it might be. Um, but that's just me. That's the way. I, that's the way I took it. I think uh, in the main campaign mode, me and my brother played it, and that you could go around collecting treasure for guns. I think so. It's a case yeah. of him. He's he's a much better video game player than I am. He's younger than I am as well. So it's doubly doubly insulting. You just go up and run and nick all the treasure. Um, yeah. <laughs> See, in the original game, I like the fact that mm. you could quite conceivably run out of ammunition if you if you play fast and loose with with your guns and. You, try and take out every enemy you'll just run out of bullets and yeah. then you're screwed like there's no more to be found and then that's it you pretty much would have to restart the game mm. uh, so it's pretty unforgiving back then i think i was just sort of thinking in terms of because i watched your um your uh, tomb raider video as well about comparing the two different versions of uh well the the 90s version of lara croft versus this sort of Ortiz reboot and which was actually originally yeah. written by terry pratchett's daughter who's quite a a well-renowned game writer as well in her own right. And I just wondered, did you have a pitch slash treatment for a Tomb Raider film that was tucked away in your desk drawer somewhere? No, no, not at all. Um, you know, I was just analysing it purely from the point of view of the gaming experience that you get <clears throat> from playing it. And the thing that, um, that always struck with me about the original Lara was that there was a great mystique about the character. Mm. Uh, I think I talked about that in my video, is that, you know you only get like little fragments of insight into her her life outside of this game and and her experiences and stuff but it's enough to keep you interested in her and yeah you know i i don't i don't care about like you know what she was doing when she was eight years old and she was um you know playing hide and seek with her dad in her big mansion house like that's not interesting about the character yeah. it takes away from that air of mystery about her mm-hmm. uh, but i also like the fact that she's much more independent and and much better at making decisions in the original game yeah you know she's not forced into a situation that she has to kind of escape from and she's not she's not constantly like crying or Mm. or frightened every two minutes about something while simultaneously mowing down dozens (laughs) of people no she's she goes in because she's an adventurer she she willingly you know goes into these tombs to look for artifacts and stuff because that's what she loves doing that's her Mm. lifestyle and i think that's incredibly like compelling about the character it's like oh wow you've got this female character who's just adventurous who just loves doing stuff for the hell of it because she finds it fun um i I think that makes for a much more interesting character than what you end up with in the the new games Mm. uh, where she's always whining she's always scared she's always like moralizing about how she's to blame for everything um it's 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 less interesting for me i guess do you think like a director like Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump, who've just signed up to do the sequel to the, I guess you want to say that like, soft reboot or the reboot to um, Tomb Raider that was out a few years ago. I mean, do you think they'll be allowed to take Lara Croft in a different direction? Because my mind was always going, one of the games that she's chasing down like T-Rexes and it gets like a lot more sort of like mythical, which I guess I'd never really sort of successfully uh, succeeded to get the more... Um, 
fantasy elements of Tomb Raider. They've normally sort of backstepped and tried to make it a bit more uh, based in reality, where I kind of feel that maybe going the opposite direction might be of some benefit to the series in terms of the films. I think you could go either direction with it. <clears throat> if it's well written, then you could probably make either one work. Yeah. Um, the the sort of Angelina Jolie movies were based around that more um, fantastical element. There was magic, there was time travel and mm. stuff in it. And it worked fine for what it was. Like um, It was obviously kind of tongue-in-cheek and a bit campy. Mm. Um, but I guess that's that's an element of what made Tomb Raider interesting as a yeah. game. It's, it's one of those ones I don't necessarily think it's ever going to translate that well into a movie. Right. Like Alicia Vikander, um, who plays Lara now, um, you know, she was perfectly adequate in the role, mm. but she kind of felt like she'd taken a back seat in her own movie. Yeah. Like, um, she's just kind of there and she gets kind of dragged along for most of the plot. Um, whereas I feel like Lara should be a lot more proactive. And mm. uh, again, it puts her into that situation where she's just, she's trapped and she's got to fight her way out of it rather than willingly going forward and, and looking for clues and, and doing the things that are actually involved in Tomb Raider. So I, I, I'm really surprised they're even doing a second movie, Me if I'm too. honest, because... Yeah. It wasn't that much of a success, as far as I know. Um, so I don't know how much of an appetite there is for another one. But, well, who knows? Maybe they'll do something interesting with it. So I just wanted to kind of just jump into your own experience of having your own work adapted to the to the screen. Because I know you sold the film rights to your first novel, Redemption, a few years ago. Um, I just wondered yes. what the how the development process is going so far and having just watched your video on the adaptation of clan of the cave bear i just wondered if you had any um concerns yeah <laughs> yeah i mean to be honest like yeah when you sign it over you you basically you know give up that control over it and it becomes not yours anymore it's someone else's interpretation of your work so you know that's fair enough i think you have to be at peace with that before you even do it otherwise don't sign the rights over mm. um but in terms of the actual process of adapting it to the screen it's just long it, it takes a long time um you know the, a lot of people um they'll production companies will buy up the rights to a book and then just sit on them for decades yeah. because they can it's just to make sure they've got it and just in case that book ever becomes like a, a mega hit They've mm. got the film rights to it, um, and you know, in my case, they are they've been actively developing it for a couple of years. Um, they got a script written. Um, they are trying to pull like, together this sort of international financing to make it work right. um, because it's not like you know, it's not like Universal Studios has bought this or anything. It's a mm. much smaller kind of production company, um, but it's. You know this movie if to make it it's going to need a fairly hefty budget because it's an international thriller there's action scenes there's going to be all kinds of you know um you know, location shots they would have to do in the desert that sort of thing yeah uh, and that costs money so the, the the way they have to make it work is to get partners to agree to it um, and to to invest in the movie um and then get you know a shooting schedule that allows everyone to to get their monies back and all that sort of thing and yeah. get actors attached to it who are going to draw in enough money to make the thing viable so it's like this huge web of, of or this huge collection of plates that have got to be constantly spinning mm. um, at the same time and they've all got to be um, lined up uh, at that perfect moment to make it all work so um, i think they've got quite a few of the plates spinning right. so that's cute. <laughs> yeah they're... I, for the most part, I'm like, yeah, just, you know, give me a call when it goes into production and then write me a check. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So <laughs> did they um so they, did you send you like a draft of the sort of script for you to look over and did they were they interested in having you give a few notes? Yeah, I mean they were they were interested in my um because uh, as far as my contract goes, I've got a degree of creative input. That's mm-hmm. what it says. So it pretty much means I can make suggestions, but they can totally ignore them if yeah. they don't like them. So um, most of the time, um, it'll just be, you know, they'd come to me and say, like, you know, give me a good description of what this character is like. Right. Who do you think would be good to play them? What sort of person do you think they are? And, you know, yeah. I'll write them out notes and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and I've seen uh, an earlier draft of the script, right. which was surprisingly close actually to the um to the book um Mm. it updated some of the things because the book set um about 10 years ago so they've updated certain things to make it more uh, relevant but yeah most of the things they've actually managed to keep in so i was quite surprised Um, whether that's the the final version i don't know Um, but it is quite cool to see someone else's interpretation of your your work I mean, did you not fancy um, possibly in the future writing screenplays yourself? Because I know it's a very different medium from writing a novel. It definitely is about economy and it's almost a sense of almost, I don't know, minimalism on the page. You just don't have, you know, this lovely sort of like flowing sentences and paragraphs and and description in in screenplays. Is that something that's ever sort of caught your imagination of something you might want to do? It does appeal to me. Um, like you say, it's a different process and you've got to be much more economical to go from like a 500 page book down to a 90 or 100 page screenplay is no easy task. But to still <clears throat> tell the same sort of kind of story, um, you know, when I write my books, I mm-hmm. kind of imagine the scenes playing out in front of me as if they're a film. So I, I would imagine the angle I'm seeing it from and how the characters are moving around in that scene, how they they you know, look at each other, their facial expressions, all that kind of thing. So it wouldn't be too far removed from what I do at the moment. And I've had yeah. people come to me actually since, you know, since the YouTube channels take it off and say like, you know, um, we've got screenplays that we're doing for like, you know, independent movies and stuff. Would you be mm. interested in like reviewing them and polishing them up? That sort right. of thing. And it's like, well, yeah, I'd love to, but like right now I'm doing my YouTube channel. I'm writing my next novel at mm-hmm. the moment. I've worked, a job and um, part-time as well so all of those things there's, there's just no way I can fit it all in you know I just was interested though in your earliest interviews promoting um, redemption you spoke about character being the key to a successful engaging story and I just kind of wanted to know growing up in Scotland who was the kind of like most interesting complex person you knew and how did they kind of inform and shape your approach to writing fictional characters late in your life you know you meet so many people mm. in your life there's going to be aspects of people that mm you know, whether it's just some interesting little quirk or mm. like a turn of phrase or, or something about them, you're like, oh, you know, that that's really cool. I'd be, I'd, I'll work that into a character at some point yeah. um, or have it form the basis of someone. Uh, but it's not like there was a, you know, Ryan Drake's not based on a, a real person that yeah. I know or anything like that. They, you know, these characters come from a completely different mm-hmm. world, I guess. Um, but yeah, the, the Critical Drinker is more based on people that I've known right. growing up in Scotland because, you know, <laughs> Plenty, plenty of people like drinking here. So, I mean, what's been the biggest challenge for you transitioning between the literary and YouTube world? And has there been any sort of like backlash from, say, publishers or agents or fans? Yeah, I mean, I think most people recognise that the critical drinker is a character that you play. You know, it's almost like mm. being an actor. You're playing a role. Um, and, you know, for the most part, like, I, I haven't really bothered to, to try and uh, merge those two different worlds, if mm. you know what I mean. Like, yeah. I, I do my and I do my YouTube and, and you know I don't see them as overlapping particularly right. because they're different things um, so I guess it's it's not really been an issue 
Um, the more difficult issue is the kind of creative side of it where, right. you know, I'm writing my books. Um, I have to be in like, you know, super focused kind of serious um, author mode. Yeah. And then if I want to do a script for a, for a drinker video, I have to completely flip into like, you know, uh, funny, um, you know, irreverent, mm. uh, but sort of analytical mode to, to talk about the thing I'm going to do. So it's like yeah. a complete step change in my mind. So I have to kind of compartmentalize my brain a little bit to, to do all these different things. I mean, can you do both in the same day? Because that's something I found tricky when I've been writing sort of more fictional sort of stuff and then going on and actually writing more <laughs> analytical stuff. I find for my brain works, I can probably do one a day. But I just wonder with you, do you sometimes write a drinker script and then have like a, say a few hours spare to, well, not spare, but to write your sort of um, books as well? Yeah, I did it yesterday. Um, oh. I was working on my book during the day and then... Um, I decided I was going to do a drinker video in the evening because I was kind of burned out with writing by that right. point. Um, I was like, you need to, need to do something else. And um, I ended up putting out a video about, um, I think, Kevin Feige moving over to Star Wars. You did, I watched it. Star Wars movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I did that yesterday evening. So it can be done. It's hard, though. Um, mm. And a, a beer or two kind of helped me on the, the process to get into drinker mode. I just wondered in terms of there was sort of an Ozzy Osbourne like sort of like pressure for when you actually meet people in in real life to be <laughs> to be drunk to be inebriated and hungover um and most of the time. Yeah. And... <laughs> I I think it's yeah I was you know it's more of a an issue when I'm doing things like live streams or just like interviews like I'm doing now where mm. you know I'm not reviewing something and I'm not working from a script. Um, clearly, I can't do the drinker voice for like. Uh, if I was on a live stream for like four or five hours straight, I would just shred my vocal cords. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, you can't maintain that kind of character for that length of time. So I just have to be honest when I do things like that. It's like, look, I'm out of character at the moment. I'm just going to talk as me. Um, but I mean, it's it's fine because, you know, although the drinker obviously is like me times a hundred, mm. like all the opinions that I express when I'm doing those videos are my opinions. They're yeah. just like amped up a little bit. Um, so I would always stand by everything I say um, mm. as that character anyway. So when I do talking about uh, movies that I've reviewed in the past or whatever, <clears throat> I'll usually have the same points or the same opinions about them that I've always had, you know? Yeah. So it's, I think it's just managing people's understanding of how it works. And I think most people on, you know, they get it. It's like, mm. you can't, can't be in character 24 7 that's just not possible so my final question um for you was what's your dream project if money and time uh, wasn't an issue yeah i mean i think it's kind of happening at the moment like seeing um my my books get made into movies mm -hmm. is my sort of ultimate goal um obviously one's kind of on the way what i'd love is for that to be successful and then be able to to you know convert the rest of them into films um, to be able to do that, it would be like the, the kind of biggest achievement, I guess, that I could hope for. So, yeah. yeah, that that would do. I'd be satisfied with that, I would say. I don't know when you sold the rights, but it definitely seems like there's this golden, well, golden era of TV, which seems to be maybe not becoming so golden at the moment. But is that something that maybe, because you've got a long-running series, I don't, I want to say, you are you on book eight now of the Ryan Drake series? Yeah, so eight of them have come out, and I'm yeah. working on the, the ninth one, which is the last one. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, TV is another option. You could probably do it. You need a pretty hefty budget just because mm. it's action heavy. But uh, yeah. that would that wouldn't be something I would complain about. I think either way, if you bring it to the screen, yeah. um, <clears throat> so few authors get that opportunity. Mm. So even to have gotten to the stage that I'm at makes me feel you know incredibly lucky. 
So um, I just uh, kind of happy to, to see where it goes, I suppose. So there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Will. Please do like and subscribe to the show on SoundCloud and YouTube and drop a comment or two. And you can get in touch with me at the Salmoning01 on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.